That was a great introduction. Did we record that? I might need to use that again someday. It was really nice. The first thing I want to tell you is uh, Bill introduced me as Rich Joy, that that is my real name. Uh, <laughs> I, I had coffee with uh, Jim Taylor about a month ago, just so we could start to get to know each other. And I said, in the middle of the conversation, hey, Jim, I just have to ask you, is your real name James Taylor, like the singer? And he said, yeah, I get that all the time. I said, I know, people ask me all the time if Rich Joy is my real name. I actually had someone ask me once, is Rich Joy your real name or your pastor name? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I made it up. It's my pastor name, Rich Joy. What's better than that? Um, you met my wife, Heidi. She stood up with me, but you didn't meet. I brought my prayer support with me, my prayer team. My mother-in-law, Natalie Samuelson, is also here. <laughs> uh, she prays for me all the time. And uh, it's a blessing. So Heidi and I have been married for 42 years. We just celebrated that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we have three grown married children and six grandchildren from one and a half to 10 years old. And those little guys are the joy of our life these days. But we also love serving the church. Heidi and I have always just had a love for the church and to do whatever we can to help his church. And so I really am excited to be here today. I'm glad to be in the house of God. I'm glad to be able to serve in this role as Calvary grows through its transition until such time as God brings your next lead pastor to you. And God is good. He is faithful. Jesus is building this church. Next week, we're going to start uh, the book of Colossians, the New Testament book of Colossians. We're going to take that right through to Thanksgiving. 2,000 years ago, God spoke to his people in the Colossian church. And today, in these next few months, he's going to speak to Calvary Church through the book of Colossians. I'm not starting it today, because also about a month ago, I was praying for Calvary. I was actually praying for this moment, right here, right now. And I was saying, God, what do you want me to say on my first day there? What do people need to hear? What do I need to express? Give me some words so that I have something worthwhile to share to the people when I'm there on my first day. Where do we start? And Ephesians chapter 2 came into my mind. And some ideas started to form about a month ago about what Ephesians 2 says. So this past week, I really dug in. And I read through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and I started to really hear from God about some things in this passage that are worth saying, and, uh, and got my, my thoughts to about 90% done, and it dawned on me it would be a good idea to listen to what Peter said last week, uh, to see if there are any connections between what he said last week and what I'm saying this week. So I pulled up his sermon on the webpage, and I listened to it, and it is amazing. It shouldn't even be surprising, but Peter actually said phrases last week that I had in my notes to say this week. So are there connections? Absolutely. First one was, uh, I have to agree with Peter, that scene in The Sound of Music where the Von Trapp family is running from the Nazis, it's heart pounding, it's terrifying. But actually he did say something that's really worth repeating, totally bears repeating. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. I hope you recognize what he said. He stood right here and he said, I want you to remember that at Calvary Church, it is never about who's up here. It's not about whose face it is or who this person is. It's always about Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the reason we're together. He's the one we worship. He's the one who builds the church. We don't want to have a church that's personality driven by a person. We want to have a church that's built by the hand of Jesus Christ. And, and so Peter was here for his tenure, and and Jesus is leading him to do something else. And I talked with enough of you to know that last week was bittersweet. 
that it was sad to say goodbye to Peter and his family, but also you're supportive of what God is doing in his life, and God has brought me here for this moment to serve until he brings whoever your next lead pastor will be, and I promise you this, his timing will be just right, and he is working on bringing the right person here as your search team works on getting the right person here because Jesus is Lord and Master. He's the one in control. So we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And I want to read all 10 of those just so you can hear the, the whole passage. And then I'll go back and break up some of what I think needs to be said about this passage today. If you have a Bible, you can open to Ephesians 2. If you have a device, you can go there. If you want to just sit and listen, just sit and listen. Here is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. I believe the reason God gave me this passage is it brings us all to the starting point, where we start with Jesus. And I also see it as just a level playing field. Let's all get on the same level ground with this passage. It begins with this. Let me just reread the first few verses to you. And this time, we'll, I think we're putting it up on the screen for you. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, what this first part of this passage says is you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and you were made alive in Christ. That because of our transgressions, because of our sins, we became dead. Now, let's just define what are our transgressions and sins. These are the things we do that offend a holy God, that break his commandments. The things that offend a holy God or hurt other people. Actions, words, thoughts that fall outside his realm of commands for us, his realm of guidelines that he's given us, his uh, list of this is what I want you to do and this is what you shouldn't do. When we commit those sins, when we do something that God says not to do, then we find ourselves dead in our transgression and sin before we've come to him to become made alive. So sin, what, what could sin be? Maybe I haven't told the truth. Maybe I've told the half-truth. Maybe I've thought murderous or angry thoughts about another person. Maybe I've cheated. Maybe I've done something that falls outside the Ten Commandments. But really, what is the essence of sin? If we trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve, here was the scene in the garden. God created Adam, God created Eve, and everything was perfect, and they walked in relationship with God. And God said, you can have everything. Rule this world, subdue it. Take every seed-bearing plant, every tree, all the fruit. It's all yours. 
Take from whatever you want, except don't eat from that tree. That one right there, the knowledge of good and evil, you're not allowed to take that one. So what did Adam and Eve do? They enjoyed the garden, they enjoyed the fruits, and they kept looking at that tree. And eventually they went over and they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you could say their sin was they disobeyed God's one command. And you'd be right, that would be true. But I think at the heart of it, what they were doing was they were rebelling against God. They were making themselves God instead of God. In essence, by eating from the fruit of that tree, they were saying, we're going to be our own gods. We're going to make our own decisions. We're going to be in control of our own lives. And so fast forward now all the way up to here today, me? Sure, I can, I can commit a sin by telling a half-truth or a lie or cheating or misrepresenting myself or speaking angry or hurtful words, but the essence of my sin before God is a rebellion against him. It was the desire to make myself God instead of Jesus. That's my transgression and sin. And in that place, the Bible says I was dead. And in that place, the Bible says you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. So what is dead? What is dead? You might be sitting there right now thinking, well, what is dead? I'm still breathing. My heart's still beating. I'm still thinking. I'm still going to walk out this door when church is over. I came to the point where I came to Jesus and I confessed my sins, but I wasn't dead dead. What is dead? This dead that the passage refers to, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, refers to your disconnection from the one who is life itself. Spiritually, we broke connection with God. Death in the Bible, uh, sin in the Bible, and death in the Bible is a separation. It's a separation from God. So sure, my lungs can keep on breathing, my brain can keep on thinking, but if I have not come to the place where God has made me alive, I am dead inside, spiritually dead to the Lord by my transgressions and sins. So what do you do with dead? What do you do with dead? There's nothing you can do with dead except bury it and leave it dead, unless you're God. And what God did with our dead is he made us alive in Christ. This is really important for us to understand because what I've noticed over the years is we have a tendency as Christians to substitute other words for dead and alive. And it's dangerous. Sounds innocent enough, but it's very dangerous. We tend to start thinking like this. Not that I was dead and God made me alive, but that I was bad and God made me good. That's really dangerous thinking because it's very problematic. It creates some wrong thinking that impacts our relationship with God. Let me spend a little bit of time talking about why this is dangerous thinking. If I say that I was bad and God made me good, what creeps into that thought is, maybe I could try to make myself a little better. Because in my mind now, there are levels of bad. So I was bad, I make myself a little better, maybe I'm more acceptable to God. And then I can become good. And then I carry that into my relationship with God. Yeah, I was bad, God made me good. What God wants me to be is good, good, and better and better. I've got to be good so God will continue to love me. I've got to be good so God will continue to accept me. I have to make better choices because the ones I was making before were not good. They were bad. And there is some truth to God wants us to grow. 
He wants us to be in the habit of making good choices that honor him. But at the basis of this thinking, it starts to crumble. If I think this way, not that I was dead and God made me alive. If I think I was bad and God made me good, then I think maybe God's whole plan is just to make me better and to expect me to be better. And it leads me to comparison. Here's how it works when I think I was bad and God made me good. I look around the room and I say, okay, we were bad. We were bad. You were bad. You were really bad. Well, you, whoa, you are bad. And that, oh, worse you can get. And I, here's how I can think. I was bad and God made me good, but I wasn't that bad. You ever think like that? You would never say it out loud. Even this phrase, some of you are old enough to remember, we used to say this, there but for the grace of God go I. And there's truth in that. Except for the grace of God, my life would be a wreck. I promise you, it'd be a mess. But what's implied in that thinking, when I say there but for the grace of God go I, there's something in my mind that says, yeah, but I'm not that. I'm not as bad as that. I was bad, but not that bad. If I think I was bad and God made me good, it just leads to comparison. It leads to judgment. It leads to self-righteousness because I will always think I'm a little bit better than most of the rest of the people. Sorry for you guys, but I was a little better than all of you before God made me good. It's dangerous thinking because it lends to comparison. So let's do comparison with the truth. The truth is, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and God made you alive. So let's compare. I'm dead. You're dead. You were dead. You were dead. You were dead. You were dead. There aren't levels of dead. You can't be less dead. I can't make myself less dead. So it totally levels the playing field. We were all dead in our transgressions and sins, and God made us alive in Christ. The only thing you can do with dead is God makes it alive. There's nothing I can do with dead. I can't come to God and say, would you accept me if I was a little less dead? If I just get a little bit more alive, if I make myself a little bit more lively, would I be more acceptable to you? That doesn't even work in our thinking, does it? I was dead, and becoming alive is 100% dependent, dependent on what Jesus did on the cross. It's completely dependent on God. There's no boasting in that. That's why this passage we read in a little bit says, by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. I can't boast. I can't come to God and say, well, God, I was dead. Now look at me. I'm alive. Because he's the one who did it. You would, it'd, be, it'd be silly to, to make that boast before God. It's all dependent on him. When God makes us alive, it's his doing. And there's only one thing we can do. I'm going to take us back to Adam and Eve again. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate from that tree and they broke their relationship with God, do you remember what they did? They didn't come running to God and say, oh God, we disobeyed you. They hid. They hid in the bushes. And God came walking through the garden during the day. And he said, Adam, where are you? And it wasn't because God didn't know where Adam was. Adam didn't just pop out of the bushes and God say, oh, huh, I didn't know you were there. <laughs> when God says, where are you, it's not because he doesn't know where you are, it's because you don't know where you are. And he's inviting you to come out into the light so you can see clearly the reality of what's happened to the relationship. What God wanted from Adam and Eve was to come out of the bushes so that he could make this right. And it cost blood. 
For the first time in the garden, he killed an animal. He shed blood. He clothed their nakedness. And it took the spilling of blood to start that happening, which we know is a foreshadowing of what would come later when Jesus came and shed his blood. Jesus came, lived a perfectly sinless life, absolutely innocent. Imagine this. Imagine living a life like this. Jesus never once sinned. Never once. Never spoke a hurtful word or or sarcastic cutting remark. Never had a hateful thought toward a person. Never committed a sinful action. His entire life, a perfectly lived life. And then he went to the cross to take a punishment he did not deserve. So that as he bled and died, he could say, Father, take this punishment and pay for their sin. Because he didn't deserve it. He didn't need any payment for his sin. He didn't have any. And so God applied that payment to our account. So what's our job? Our job is to come out of the bushes. Our job is to come out of hiding. When God calls to us and says, hey, where are you? You're dead in your transgressions and sins. We can hide in the bushes and say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm better than them. I haven't really sinned. Or we can come out of hiding and say, yeah, here I am. Here I am. Such as I am, you're right, I sinned, I'm dead. And then at that point, with the blood of Christ, God makes us alive in Christ. Why? Why in the world would God do this? It says it in our next section, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, there's your answer. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why would God send Jesus to this earth to pay a price he didn't need to pay so that we could be forgiven and made alive? The answer is right there. It's because he loved us. Because he loved us. And I want to point out a couple of words. I'm going to point to the screen here. Um, It says that he, let me see if, if we have to go back a little bit. Yes, could you go back to the slide before this, please? Right, verse five. It says, when we were dead, In our trespasses, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This says that God made us when we were dead. You have been saved. You have been. Flip to the next slide, please. Here it is. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You notice all the past tense in that? That matters. That's important. This passage is saying it's already done. It's already done. There's nothing more to do. When Jesus died on the cross and he said it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. It's done. What would it be like if this passage says we will be seated? We will be raised up. We will be saved. It means it hasn't happened yet. We've got to get there. Somehow we have to attain to that. But this says it's done. Past tense, raised up, have been seated, have been raised up, have been saved. When did this happen? When did this happen? 
Romans chapter 5. It happened while you were still powerless, while you were still helpless, while you were still a sinner, while you were living as an enemy of God. The passage says this, that while we were powerless, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were helpless and hopeless, while we were like enemies of God, we weren't even trying to be friends with him. Before you even made a move to get to know Jesus, he died for you because he loved you. Done. Past tense. Our job is just to come to him and acknowledge it's true. You're right, Jesus. I'm dead in my transgressions and sins. I've been trying to be my own God. I've sinned. I've broken relationship with you. Forgive me. Forgive me. And he does, and he starts to redeem us. And then he does a work in us. And this is kind of the beautiful thing that happens next. It's in verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That you are God's workmanship. God has a plan for you. God is at work in you. That God didn't just make us alive. He didn't say you were dead and now you were alive, go live your life, see you in heaven. This passage says that God, you were dead, God made you alive, and you are his workmanship. He is at work in you. And Philippians 1.6 says he'll finish that work that he started. It's a promise. If God began a work in you, he will finish it. Right now we're in process that we are God's workmanship. Another way this word workmanship is commonly translated is the word masterpiece. How many have heard that translation, masterpiece? It's really, it's really a, um, a beautiful way to think about what God is doing in our lives, is that he's creating a masterpiece in you. That when God looks at you, he says, ah, masterpiece, masterpiece, look what I'm making. You probably have gone through a museum where you've seen works of the masters, an art gallery or a museum that displays things from Picasso, Van Gogh, Da Vinci, Renoir, Rembrandt, and you see these beautiful masterpieces. Some of them don't make sense to me, but people have said these are beautiful masterpieces. <laughs> but what you're, what you're seeing when you're walking around that gallery is you're seeing the finished product. You're seeing what was in the heart and mind of that artist when they decided to start that painting, they wanted to express something that was in their heart. They wanted to convey something that was in their mind in a beautiful, artistic, creative way. So they worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and produced this masterpiece, which is a representation of something they envisioned inside of them. But we're seeing the final product. What's difficult for us when we read this passage that says we are his masterpiece is we're thinking final product. But the only one right now seeing the final product is the master. What we're seeing is the work in process, but we have to remember that what God is seeing is the masterpiece. He knows what he's making you to be. He knows what you will become. He sees the finished product. It just popped into my head. This happens sometimes, by the way. By the way I just have a thought pop in the middle of my head. I get totally distracted by it. Uh, do you know what uh, Ruth Bell Graham has on her tombstone, Billy Graham's wife? Uh, construction completed, thanks for your patience. I love that. Because <laughs> she recognized that she's God's masterpiece, but a work in progress. Now, um, I don't really know a lot about painting, artwork, drawing, 
Uh, I, my artistic ability has advanced to the level of about well-proportioned stick figures. So I have a friend who's a great artist. His name is Neil Marrero, and uh, he, he's done beautiful paintings. He's a master. We have some of his works on display in our house. It's just amazing when you see these paintings, these just beautiful works of art. So I started talking with him about the process so that I could understand it. And sometimes, some of you may know this, you might be painters. Uh, you, you get a canvas, and you're starting to see in your mind what this thing will become. And you're starting to picture. And as artists who live in the flesh and blood in this earth, the truth is we don't always know what that final thing is going to look like because it develops sometimes as we're going. But God is a master painter. When he begins to work in you, he knows exactly what that final product's going to look like. So an artist now, they'll, maybe they'll cover their, their canvas with a foundation, you know, just a foundation paint, and then start adding brush strokes, various colors, various textures. Some of those brush strokes look lumpy. I've seen them. It's like not even smooth. And, and they make um, an unorganized mess. If you came upon a master working on a masterpiece at that point in the process, you'd say, what is that? It's just a mess of colors and brush strokes. It doesn't make any sense to me. But in the master's mind, they're seeing what that will become. And every one of those brush strokes, every one of those splotches or splatters of paint contributes to that final product. Well, that's us. You right now might look in the mirror and say, well, I don't look like a masterpiece. I look more like sloppy brush strokes and, and bloppy paint and, and disorganized colors. Everything you are right now, God is using to contribute to the masterpiece he's creating in you. The brush strokes, the splatters of paint. You are a masterpiece. You just don't see it yet. So remind yourself that you are God's masterpiece and he is at work in you. I want to show you uh, one example of the process. And I got this from my friend Neil. I said, hey, Neil, do you have any paintings that you, you finished that are done that you have a picture of, uh, the final product? And then did you take pictures of it along the way? It'd be kind of interesting to see how that works. He said, yeah, I'd love to. He sent me, I'm going to show you um, eight or nine of his pictures. So the first one is, we put that up here. Uh, the, the final painting is called uh, Lauren Sleeping Double Portrait. Lauren is his daughter, and he had her posing in a sleeping position in an art class he was teaching. And while the students were teaching, he got inspired and he took out a charcoal, uh, which I would think was a pencil, but he said it was a charcoal, and he started just sketching really quickly and he created this sketch of Lauren sleeping and then she changed positions so he did another one. If we could show the next slide. It's Lauren sleeping in a different position. And he had this vision now. He had these two sketches in front of him and he thought, I'm gonna do something really different. I'm gonna put them together into one so that Lauren's like sleeping head to head with herself in this. And you'll see that in a moment. But the next thing he did after these charcoal sketches was he started to add a little color. So we'll put this up. Um, this is on one side uh, of her pose. You can see he started to add some color. He started to add some various you know, swipes of, I don't know, black and gray and a little bit in the face. No detail at all. If I just came across this, I know Lauren. I wouldn't know that was her. There's no way I would say, oh, I know who that is, Lauren Marrero. And then he did the same thing to the other one. He added some of the same things. And then he put them together. Go to the next slide. Like this, as if they were two girls sleeping head to head here. And then he started to add a little bit more color. Go to the next slide. A little bit more detail. You see the depth starting to come out. There's some detail starting to show in the face. A little bit more detail in the fabric. Let's go to the next slide. Now he's thrown in some background. She was in a classroom. 
<laughs> not in a field, but in his mind as the artist, he saw her in a field. So he added some of that. Let's go to the next slide. I want you to see how this progresses. A little more detail. Next slide. And this is the final product framed. It's beautiful. It's a work of art. It's the finished product. It doesn't look anything like that charcoal drawing that he started with, does it? Or some of the ones along the way. Along the way, it's starting to become recognizable, maybe about halfway through. Knowing that my friend Neil painted it, I might be able to say, oh, that's Lauren. I'm starting to see now the Lauren, the true Lauren, emerge from that. But not until the final product, this one, do you really say, now that's a masterpiece. Why did I show you all that? That's you in God's eyes. You are somewhere along one of those stages, and God is painting you, your life, your story, who you are. And every brushstroke, every swipe of gray or white or shading or detail matters because it contributes to the masterpiece he's making you to be. This past week, Heidi and I went to the Bridgeport Rescue Mission on Wednesday morning to lead their chapel. We do that every couple of months. It's a wonderful thing uh, that they're doing there, and we're really happy to help with it. But we were driving over to the rescue mission, and we drove through the uh, city of Bridgeport downtown, and we drove past this building. I'll just show you. The, I, I, I jumped out and took a couple of pictures of it. We can put the next slide up. So uh, this was, as you, you know, you probably have seen these. This is a big old building and they're starting to reclaim some of the area, and someone commissioned this huge mural to be painted on the side of the building. This is actually two walls coming together. And, and it's, it's, it was like 20 or 30 feet high. I should have tried to take an estimate. It's huge. You can see there's a, there's a lift in front of it. Can you see that? And he, he or she wasn't there at the moment I took the picture, but the artist stands in that lift and paints this huge mural. And we were driving by, and I saw that, and I said to Heidi, I don't get how you do that. How does somebody stand this far away from something and paint something so big you can't see it all? How do they know what's over there? How do they proportion that so these brushstrokes actually contribute to the whole thing? In a way, if I was doing it, you'd have this big head over here and little hand down here, and it'd be all out of whack, right? How do you do that? I have no idea. That's what I was thinking as we were driving by it. And, uh, and as I was saying this to Heidi, I, I don't understand how someone can do this. And, um, and then it, it occurred to me, oh, wait a minute, there's actually a good lesson in this. Because what we see in our lives is what that artist sees on the lift. What I see, when I look at my life, I see a snapshot that covers maybe today, or a week, or if I really stretch my mind a year, and I could think about who I was six months ago and dream about who I might be in six months, but I see only small portions of it. But God, the master, sees from back here. He can see the entire thing. He might be painting this one little section right here, but he sees the entire mural. And if I really grab hold of that, it helps me trust him. I could say, right now, at this point in my life, this is not making a lot of sense. This is kind of painful. This is confusing. God, why aren't you rescuing me from this? Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you delivering me? Why aren't you hearing me answering my prayer? And what I don't see is what's over here that's been painted coming next. But God sees that. My job is to trust him that he's the master worker who's painting that picture.
There's another way to look at this, because the literal word in this passage for, that we translate workmanship or masterpiece is actually poema. It's a Greek word. Sounds like our English word. The Greek word poema means poem. So really, the best way this should be translated is not you are God's workmanship or you are God's masterpiece. It should say you are God's poem. I've done a little bit of writing. Not great. I've tried a little poetry. Okay. But I, so I know a little bit more about the process of putting words together than I do about the process of putting painting together. We can take this slide down if you have a, a blank to put up. There you go. Um, I probably could paint that. When you're working through your, something you're writing, when you're trying to put a poem together, which I've done, I've tried to write poetry, that doesn't just sound like roses are red, violets are blue. That's fun. It's good to put in a birthday card. But to try to write something that really expresses what's in my heart in a creative way that puts words together in ways I haven't put words together before. I want to string these words together and make my heart, my thought come out onto the paper. So when you read it, you read it and you know my heart and you know my mind. It's an expression. When I write a poem, it's an expression of something that's inside of me. And sometimes when I'm working through something like that, I write some words, and I'm like, eh, that's not it. I try a couple other combinations. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I try something else. I work on it to fully express what's in my heart and in my mind. So think about that for a minute. You are God's poema. You are God's poem. What you are is an expression that's something God holds in his heart and his mind. And he's writing it. He's putting it out there. Why? So other people can see you and get a glimpse into God's heart. So other people can look at your life and your story and say, oh, that tells me something about God. You're his poem. And just like with the masterpiece, you don't always feel like a beautiful poem. You might feel like crossed out words. I don't know if God crosses out words. I do. You might feel like, oh, it's not quite coming together. It's not making sense yet. But trust this passage. You are God's poema. Now, it's probably a Sunday morning message for an entire uh, different morning to just dive into the power of words. God created this world by saying, let there be, let there be, let there be. Jesus is called the word. There's power in the word in this world. It's woven into the DNA of our creation. Words are powerful. So what does it mean that the scripture, the word of God, calls us a word, God's poem, his expression? Now, this is true of you, but I also want to wrap up by saying it's true of Calvary Church. Calvary Church is God's workmanship. Calvary Church is God's masterpiece. Calvary Church is God's poem. Calvary Church is so important to this community and has been for so many years. Amy referred to that earlier, and I was so glad she did. My love for Calvary Church goes all the way back to Dave McIntyre. I know Pastor Anderson was before him. I didn't really know him, but I knew Dave. And when Heidi and I were starting off trying to found Crossroads Church, and I visited some of the local pastors to talk to them, Dave was the most wonderful gift of God to me. For those of you who were here when he was here, you could probably almost hear his soft, kind, sweet voice say to me, Rich, tell me what you're doing. What's God doing in your life? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? And so Dave and I had a, you know, an informal relationship through the years he was here. I spent many Good Fridays right on this platform with him. And then uh, um, Peter Smith, uh, I've known and 
have respected and loved, and more than whoever it is who's standing here, Peter said this, more than whose ever face it was, Jesus has had his hand upon Calvary Church for years and years and years. Jesus began a good work, Philippians 1, 6. We, I used it this way. We often just use it on an individual. God began a good work in you and he'll complete it, but it was actually written to a church. So that word comes to us from a couple thousand years ago as a promise to Calvary today. The work that God began in you, he will carry on until completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And the truth is, right now at Calvary, it feels a little bit more like brushstrokes and a little bit more of swirling colors that have to get organized. We're in a time of transition. And I'm very thankful that God has allowed Heidi and I to be here with you during this time of transition, to just be part of the story and part of what God is doing until he brings your next lead pastor. But I want to assure you, if you look around and say, it just looks like chaotic colors to me right now. I don't understand what's going on. All these brushstrokes. Jesus is at work in you, and he has not disappeared. Peter said this last week, and I laughed. I'm sitting at my dining room table. I laughed right out loud to what he said. He said, Jesus is in control. Jesus didn't say, oh, no, Peter's leaving. Well, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do now? This is part of his plan. This is part of his work in his masterpiece, his poema. So be assured, Calvary Church, that what God has been doing in you, building the body, Growing disciples, making an impact, he is continuing to do in you. And will do in a new and fresh way. Calvary Church is so vital to God's kingdom. It's so important to this community for you to grow as a body and for you to grow as disciples and for you to make an impact in the place God has put you here at Calvary. You together are his masterpiece, his poema, the expression of his heart. I'm going to call the band back up here. And uh, they've got planned. Let me just move this out of the way. Come on up, band. They're planning to end our time together with a, a version of How Great Thou Art. It's a very common hymn done in a fresh way. I think you've done it here before, right, Amy? This is not a new song for everybody, right? No. It's not a new song for everybody. Um, and I, I, I came here early so I could worship a little bit while the, while the band was running through, and I was so glad I did because this song starts big. I was thinking when I got to the end of my comments, I was going to have you sit quietly and just think about being God's masterpiece. That was my plan. And then I heard this song, and I said, that's not what we're doing today. We're going to stand and declare that God is faithful. We're going to stand and declare that God is good. We're going to lift up his name because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus started the work in this church. Jesus will finish the work in this church. And if it looks like brushstrokes to us, so be it. It looks like brushstrokes. He's still in control. So we're going to lift up his name together with, the, with our, our minds, our hearts, our voices, and uh, the band is going to lead us through. So go ahead, start us off.